Good morning, good afternoon, good evening or good night, depending on where you happen to be on planet Earth. Planet of the Apes. How you doing? It's Thursday's programme. It's exactly five o'clock. It is here in Salford anyway. My name is Richie Allen. You know me as the BBG. This is the last live show of the week and I think it'll be a good one. Tweet me, BBG Richie. That's the Twitter handle. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Now, the author, the philosopher, and the jazz saxophonist, the Gilad Atzman, will join me in around about 45 minutes' time. He is in Athens right now. Very special place, Athens. We'll be chatting about Palestine, of course, Israel, but not exclusively. We'll be talking about the big C as well, COVID, and much more with uh, the great Gilad Atzman. I know you'll have things to say, so say them, as I said, through Twitter. All right? All right, yes. Lovely. Loads of emails. Thank you uh, for emailing me through the website. And I'm annoyed with myself. I didn't see this until today. I had a lovely email from Sylvia earlier in the week. She says, Richie, will you say happy 50th birthday to Darcy? Uh, my husband Darcy, who's 50 on Wednesday, Mea culpa, Sylvia. That was yesterday, of course. So belated 50th happy birthday to Darcy, who's originally from New Zealand, is residing these days in Golov, that is Galway, of course, with wife Sylvia. Apologies for not doing that yesterday. I didn't see it. If I had seen it, I would have done it. But anyway, better late than never, I would have said. I have to say that. There's nothing else I can say now, is there? But uh, thanks, Sylvia. And Darcy, I hope all is well. You might have a bit of a sore head this afternoon. Or maybe not, if you're a man of common sense or a man of good sense. Yes, it's been piddling down in Salford. Piddling! It's been piddling down. Certainly not uh, late spring weather here. It's not great at all. I like to tell you the old weather. It's not to kill time or to, uh, you know, to fill. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed these days with the weather. The maunder minimum to come and, and climate change and, and all of that. But yeah, yeah, it's been piddling down. Hopefully we've got some good weather to come. I might just get Piers Corbin back on, meteorologist extraordinaire, and ask him, hey Piers, what sort of a summer are we going to have? Because if you remember, Piers Corbin is very good at predicting what sort of summer we're going to have. He predicted the heat wave two summers ago, remember? Remember, he said it on this programme Months before it, what year was that, 2018 was it? When it was boiling, when it was rottenly hot, when we bitched and moaned about the heat, it was so bad. He called it. And last year he called the summer as it was too. So there you go. Good man. Gilad Atzman then on the programme a little bit later this hour. Did you see the rail firm apologising to the kid called Lawrence? Lawrence spelled L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. Did you see that? This is London North Eastern Railway. They've apologised, well, they did on Tuesday anyway, to a guy called Lawrence. He was on a train. I've no idea where he was travelling. 
and he had a bit of a hissy fit because the driver came on the old speaker, as the driver does, to tell you where you're going. <laughs> Even though it says it on your ticket, the driver comes on to tell you. And sometimes the driver says, we'll be stopping at here, here, Pontefract, I don't know, and so on, so on, so on, sorry, can't, whatever. And Lawrence, uh, who thinks he's non-binary, whatever that means, he got properly upset and tweeted from his train seat. He tweeted, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Yeah, that's because that's because the, 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 the driver began his address with ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls. And Lawrence got pissed off. So tweeted to London North Eastern Railway. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. So as a non-binary person, this announcement doesn't actually apply to me. So I won't listen, he said. There you are. Now, if I'd have been running the Twitter account of the rail company, I'd have replied, Lawrence, get off at the next stop or I'll beat the effing granny out of you. You little weirdo. Because I don't have any tact. Certainly no diplomacy skills anyway. Um, I'm neither male nor female. I'm non-binary, says this kid. Um, anyway, the, the reply that came back from North Eastern Ra- London North Eastern Railway was um, they said they were terribly sorry (laughs) and they moved uh, to quickly apologise to little Lawrence. They replied, I'm really sorry to see this, Lawrence. Our train managers shouldn't be using language like this and I thank you for bringing it to my attention. Please could you let me know which service you are on and I will ensure they remain as inclusive as we strive to be at London North Eastern Railway and Lawrence was delighted and he asked could he send him a personal message and off you go. Can you imagine the train journeys in the future, eh? Can you imagine rocking up at Piccadilly train station in Madchester and you're only going down the road to Stockport? Can you imagine it? Stockport, Stockport even is um, if you're going to London from Manchester, it's the first stop. The train doesn't even really get up any speed. You stop at Stockport. Can you imagine? Good morning, ladies, gentlemen, non-binaries, agenders, androgens, cisgenders, bigenders, demigenders, gender non-conformings, gender fluids, gender queers, queers, butches, bitches, pangenders. Welcome to Stockport Station. I'm sorry I'll get the rest of you on the way back, is what I'll do. I'm sorry. Madness apologising to him. We'll talk to our train drivers. We'll tell them that ladies and gentlemen is not appropriate language anymore. And in the state of Ohio, you must have seen this, get a jab, have a vaccine, and your name, believe it or not, will go into a draw for one million dollars. One million dollars. That's what I said. One million dollars. I couldn't believe it. The state of Ohio was pulling out all the stops. It's launched a lottery. Every week for five weeks there will be a draw. And the lucky recipient will win a million bucks. The way to get into the draw is to have the effing vaccine. It's to have the effing vaccine. That's the one. Get the bloody jab. Get the bloody jab. And you're in the draw. Get the bloody jab. For a million dollars. That's the one. Yeah. Five lucky winners will win a million dollars. The governor of Ohio, Mike, how do you pronounce this? Is it DeWine or DeWine or Devine? It's D-E-W. 
INE. He's hoping the scheme will encourage people to take up the jab because there's low uptake at the moment in Ohio. Apparently, Ohio residents. What do you call people from Ohio? Do you say Ohioans? Do you say that? Ohioites? Are they Ohioites or Ohioans? Where's Spiro Skouras when you need him? Ohioans. Anyway, he said the lottery would be paid for by coronavirus relief funds from the federal government. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And if you're under 18, of course, you can't go into the draw for the $1 million. However, you'll be entered into a draw for a four-year full scholarship. (laughs) Desperate times. People don't want the vaccine. Apparently, they're having this problem in the European Union as well. Apparently, in Bulgaria... 67% of adults have said they're very unlikely or unlikely to have the vaccine. How desperate will we get? Will we have game shows? Game shows is not a bad idea. If anybody is connected to television or radio, but preferably television, maybe write a treatment on my behalf. I want the credit for this. Let's launch a game show called Have the Vaccine. That's what it'll be called. Have the Vaccine. And reluctant vaccine, reluctant people, people reluctant to have the vaccine, will go on telly to be bribed with prizes to have the vaccine. It's have the vaccine. Yes, that's the one. Paul doesn't want to have the vaccine because it killed his granddaddy, paralysed granny, and blew up his uncle Jimmy's leg. Can we persuade Paul to have the vaccine? Here's your host, Bruce Foresight. That'll be some game show. So you get Bruce then to offer prizes to see will he have the vaccine. Will Paul have the vaccine over to Bruce? Okay, you ready, Paul? I'm ready. This is your showcase. Come on, Paul. Your showcase tonight, Paul, starts with this portable spa. Woo! Designed for indoor or outdoor use, this spa provides luxury bathing for up to five of your closest friends. It has a wooden surround, a heated seat, and is finished in a rose marble effect. Here's luxury bathing. And while you're relaxing in that, you can look forward to this. Yes, we're taking you on a Mediterranean cruise! He'll definitely have the vaccine. 17 nights on board one of the newest luxury cruise liners in the world. You'll visit Mallorca, Turkey, Cyprus, Egypt, Israel and Portugal. On board... I'm not too thrilled about Israel now. Go on then, Paul. Hot tub, car, car, I think you mentioned a car, and a 17-day cruise. Will you have the vaccine? I love the vaccine. I love the vaccine. Have the vaccine. It's my idea. I haven't patented it yet, but it's my idea. Have the vaccine. Jesus, huh? A million bucks, five weeks in Ohio. Let's move on from that nonsense. Do a treatment, send it into ITV. You never know. Now to serious matters, 11 minutes past five. COVID has left a toxic legacy for the NHS. Hospitals facing huge backlogs, apparently putting people's lives at risks. At risk even. Who said this? Well, patient groups and hospital staff have come together to say this. It's been on the news today. It's making the news today. And the BBC has done its own analysis of these claims. And the BBC has found that nearly a third of hospitals have seen long waits balloon, with over 10% of patients going a year without treatment. Major disruption to cancer services 
with some hospitals struggling to treat staff, excuse me, with some hospitals struggling to treat half of their patients within the target time of two months. Some hospitals struggling to treat half of their patients within the two-month target time. So concern is growing also, wait for this, for 45,000 missing cancer patients after drops in GP referrals and screening services across the UK. The drop in GP referrals, of course, is coming from the fact that people have been discouraged to go and see their general practitioner, their, their doctor, to their local NHS surgery. They've been discouraged to do that to help prevent the spread of COVID in waiting rooms in surgeries. Madness is right. Madness. Okay. Now, 18 months ago, this is for the whole UK. 18 months ago, 16,000 people had been waiting a year or more for help. Now, 400,000 people, over 400,000 people have been waiting a year or more for help. Many of these people, their care is urgent. Okay, we'll come back to that now in a few minutes' time because face-to-face doctors, doctor appointments versus speaking to your doctor online, that's making the news today and that's a big story. We'll come back to that in a moment. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson said he is anxious about the Indian variant of coronavirus and he has said today he will rule out nothing in tackling it. Rule out nothing. He was asked about surge vaccinations. Wow. Will you introduce surge vaccinations, he was asked. Um, He said he wants to consider all options. Let's hear him. He was at a school in Durham today. Boris Johnson speaking to journalists about the Indian variant of COVID and surge vaccinations. You're right to uh, raise the Indian variant or or B1617.2 as as we we must call it. Uh, It it is a variant of concern. We are uh, anxious about it. It has been spreading. Now, at the moment, there's a very wide uh, range of scientific opinion about uh, what could happen. Uh, But we want to make sure that we take all the prudential or the cautious steps now that we that we could take so uh, there are meetings uh, going on today to consider exactly what uh, we need to do uh, there's a range of of things that we could do we're, we're, we're ruling nothing out of course well there are a range of things that we uh, that we could do we want to make sure that we we grip it obviously there's surge testing surge uh, tracing making sure that whenever you uh, have a case Whenever you have a case, uh, that you, you check everybody who's been in contact with that person. But if we have to do other things, to get to your point, if we do have to do other things, then of course uh, I think that uh, the public will want us at this stage to rule nothing out. And we've always been very clear that we'll be led by the, by the data. Uh, and uh, as I say, at the moment I can see nothing that uh, dissuades me from thinking we'll be able to go ahead uh, on Monday uh, uh, and indeed on June the 21st. Everywhere. I can see I, everywhere, but there may be things that we have to do uh, locally and uh, we will not hesitate to do them if, if that is the advice we get. Maybe things we need to do locally. Boris Johnson speaking this afternoon. Now, the Mayor of Greater Manchester is Andy Burnham, sadly. Andy Burnham, King of the North. Andy Burnham, he was on Radio 5 Live this morning talking about surge vaccinations. He wants everyone in Bolton and Blackburn to have a vaccine. Everyone. 
because of concerns over the Indian variant. Here's Andy Burnham, BBC Radio 5 Live. Well, this is a different situation to the one we had last year. So the vaccine programme is protecting uh, the over 60s from this, uh, from this outbreak. But there is clearly uh, transmission of this variant amongst younger unvaccinated uh, people. So the request that uh, directors of public health here in Greater Manchester put in uh, to the government is to allow freedom to vaccinate all ages, uh, starting in the areas that are currently experiencing the outbreak. There is some signs, uh, Rachel, that it is beginning to spread to other parts uh, of of the northwest as well. So so that's what we've asked for, surge vaccine supplies. Surge vaccine supplies into areas where cases are currently highest and have been stubbornly highest throughout the pandemic. Throughout the pandemic. Now, it's important that we just get back to what he said there. This is really important. Listen now. Uh, Starting in the areas that are currently experiencing the outbreak. There is some... I didn't go back far enough, of course. He's talking about vaccinating people of all ages. ...put in uh, to the government is to allow freedom to vaccinate all ages. Uh starting in the areas that are currently experiencing the outbreak. Yeah, Andy Burnham there, Labour, Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester. He wants to vaccinate people of all ages because there's concerns about the outbreak or the spread of a variant in places like Bolton and Blackburn. I'm not going to say what I always say because I'm wasting time. How I feel about Andy Burnham, what he is, I could call him names... I could lose my temper, but I'm not going to do it. You know what Andy Burnham is, and you know what he represents. This is what's coming down the line now, this Indian variant garbage. That being said, though, Sinetra Gupta is an interesting enough woman. She is a professor of epidemiology. Let's give her her proper title. She's a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University, She is anti-lockdown, as anti-lockdown as you can get, and has been since the beginning of the scam-demic. She's mystified by the variants and the fear around them. Here is Sinetra Gupta speaking with Julia Hartley-Brewer on Talk Radio. Um, All this um, fear around variants really mystifies me, because within any traditional epidemiological framework, um, you would say that the most likely attributes of these variants is that they have a slight advantage, maybe in transmission, maybe in avoiding immunity, um, immunity towards infection. Um, So, you know, they will outcompete what's there, but there's no reason particularly to change policy, especially because we know now with I would say a high degree of certainty, something which we don't normally um, enjoy, that the vaccines work against these variants in terms of delivering immunity against severe disease and infection. And this is something people need to get in their heads. What we're trying to do is prevent people from dying. Whether or not infections go up with a new variant is not relevant. It's important that people don't die. We've protected vulnerable people now. Uh, We've had the great good fortune to have these vaccines which protect vulnerable people. I'm sure they'll protect vulnerable people against this new variant from death, maybe not infection, but that's not relevant. And given the high costs of these mitigation strategies, the suffering among the poor and the young, you know, I I can't understand how the balance of the debate shifts in favour of 
um, the specter of this new variant being some yeah. monstrous um, thing that will... It happens every yeah. time there, doesn't it? Professor Sinitra Gupta, it's always so good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Bear in mind, by the way, that Professor Gupta is rather better qualified in epidemiology than virtually everyone else on stage, some of whom are psychologists and behavioural scientists. They, they don't know about viruses, guys. Sinitra Gupta does. Mm. We'll allow the editorialising there, Julia, as there are no standards in commercial or national radio anymore, but I understand it, fair enough. It's 20 minutes past five. You know, they go so far, don't they? Gupta is right, of course, the variants, nonsense, but but they push the vaccines anyway, don't they? People like Gupta, even Carl Hennigan, pushing the vaccines. Nobody is, you can't find a, an expert in the UK, and I know they exist because some of them have been in touch with me privately, who has the courage to go on television or radio and say that the vaccine rollout itself is nonsense, is nonsensical, is dangerous, but most importantly, unnecessary. You can't find those people. They're out there, but they won't say that at all. They're playing a game, you see. Gupta and Hennigan, the anti-lockdown people, the people who are aghast that freedom has been sacrificed unnecessarily for a virus that doesn't impact the vast majority of people are, 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 are untouched by it. So they're aghast at what's happened, but they won't go far enough. They haven't the courage when on national radio to say, there's no need to vaccinate anybody really, you know. You can't have your cake and eat it, you see. You can't on the one hand say, we shouldn't lock down because this virus isn't really dangerous. But everybody should be vaccinated. You can't say that. Those things are not compatible. Cowards, maybe. Or maybe they're playing a game that is necessary for them to play to preserve their, their jobs, to preserve their family life. I don't know. You know, maybe they're scared and maybe I shouldn't judge them. And other days I don't judge them. Other days I give them a pass. But sometimes it infuriates me. We don't need to lock down. This virus is not dangerous at all. And then they say, the vaccine is working. That's what she said, Sanetra Gupta. It's working, the vaccine. Woohoo! It's great. So we shouldn't be worried about the variants. Prior to that, we don't need lockdown. The virus isn't dangerous. Make your mind up. Love, you know, is what I would say. 22 minutes it is past five more to tell you. And in about 20 minutes time, Gilad Atzman joins me from Athens. This is Stevie Wonder. And I just called to say I love you. Classic cheese. No New Year's Day. Stevie Wonder, I just called to say I love you. Hi to Aaron. How you doing, Aaron? Thanks for your tweet. He says, Richie, I'd like to share this. According to them, I'm a high-risk person. I had a kidney transplant 30-plus years ago at uh, Guy's Hospital, London, and I've never in my life been so harassed to get a vaccine, says Aaron. It's unbelievable. Needless to say, I will not be getting one. Thanks for sharing that, Aaron. Good man. Uh, absolutely top man. If you're healthy, you're in good shape, why would you want to do it? I, 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 I'm no expert. I shouldn't have an opinion, but I would be the same as you. Trevor says, Richie, wasn't Surge vaccine, <laughs> Surge vaccine in that Oscar winning French film? Boom, boom, Trevor. He might well have been. Uh, Ewan says, Richie, this could be a tactic in the future, locking down areas like they did with the tier system and then moving in to vaccinate everybody, picking them off one by one. Scary thought. Now, Ewan, you might very well be onto something. Terrify people with a variant outbreak. Hey, Rochdale. Hey, hey, Essex. Hey, 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 Romford. We found the, well, the Bally Go Backwards variant in your street. 
listen, we're sending guys over with a lorry load of vaccines. That's a very, very shrewd observation, Ewan. Yep, absolutely. You got to think like them sometimes, don't you? Absolute mont. Absolute mont. Hi to Rachel. How you doing, Rachel? Rachel, right, let's, uh, let me tell you a quick story. And uh, names withheld to protect the innocent. I have a journalist friend in Dublin, Bolly O'Clea, Ireland's great capital. And he told me a story. My friend, as a journalist, has a friend. And um, his friend is an older gentleman. And this gentleman's wife was dying in hospital last week, was on her way out. Now, the hospital wouldn't acknowledge this. The hospital wouldn't accept that she was on her way out. But the gentleman believed that she was. He knew, he could feel that she was on her last legs. The hospital wouldn't allow him in. This is in Dublin. Wouldn't let him in to see his wife. This is what's going on. But would you believe it? Somebody working at the hospital in security, somebody working at the hospital in security, knew the elderly gentleman and gave him a security guard's uniform that he could put on him so that he could be smuggled in to the hospital to pay his respects to his wife. The security guard could have lost his job. And not only might he have lost his job, but he might have been arrested. He would have been arrested. This is, well, this is Orwellian Ireland. But he risked his job and maybe his own freedom to get his friend into a hospital to visit his dying wife, gave him his uniform. Now, I have that on good authority from a reputable journalist. Maybe it's not over, eh? Maybe it's not over. Maybe there's hope yet. I wouldn't stop buying that guy drinks, that security guard. Not, 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 not if I was the gentleman. Oh, no, no, just me. I wouldn't stop buying him drinks any time I ever met him. Wonderful. Let's, let's move on. James Ball, writing in The Telegraph today. This is about the government's online harms bill, which is basically going to be the death of free speech in this country. And I'm not being melodramatic. Writing in the Telegraph today, James Ball writes this. I'll read it verbatim, at least three paragraphs anyway. On the face of it, then, the government's online harms bill is surely welcome, creating a duty of care upon online companies towards their users with hefty fines for those who fail to meet the high standards required. But, writes James, that first impression doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Ultimately, the government has fallen into the trap highlighted by Sir Humphrey in Yes Minister, thinking something must be done, this is something, and therefore they must do it. As part of its relentless efforts to inflame the culture wars, the government has repeatedly emphasised the importance of free speech and the right to offend, even introducing legislation in this Queen's speech to protect free speech on campus. Why then... Is it using the online harms bill to radically restrict online speech? By imposing significant penalties on social networks and others if they fail to remove content deemed as harmful, defined vaguely in the legislation, the government ensures social media and other sites will over-moderate in the interests of safety. That means that lots of legal and legitimate speech will be restricted. Furthermore, the bill gives Ofcom the ability to give guidance of what content does and doesn't qualify as harmful. 
giving an unelected regulator the ability to decide what can and can't be said online. The result is not regulation of big tech, it's regulation against what the British public can and cannot say online, masquerading as an effort to tackle the tech giants. That is a brilliant bit of writing by James Ball. Yes, James. Yes, James. The result of the online harms bill is not regulation of big tech. It's regulation of what the British people can and cannot say when they're online. It's a masquerade. Oh, be Jesus, so it is. The lawyer and writer Helen Dale discussed this on talk radio today with Mike Graham. Listen. The basic problem with all of this is the widening definition of harm. Everybody is trying to say that something harms them and it's become completely out of control and it's basically a vehicle for whingers. Yeah. Well, this is, this is what worries up. me because it says yeah. here... Uh, the one thing that it says is the aim is to make Britain one of the safest places to be online in the world, especially for children. Well, I don't know whether these people have actually looked at the Internet recently, but it's not actually possible to prevent the Internet from operating from a different country. So, I mean, you can make no. Britain as safe as you like, but somebody can go and look at something that's available in France on the Internet without actually going to France, unless you're going to start blocking, you know, all websites. Entire countries, yeah. yes. Uh, which I think they tried to do in China. Uh, and even in China, you can and get around it. And it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. No, no, people it, it people doesn't go work. to China and, and they get on their own little private networks. The other thing here that worries me is it says platforms have a duty to protect journalistic content, but can still take down or block content or ban companies altogether. And this is the key bit. If they generate complaints. I mean, you know, well, yes. well, everyone generates complaints because people complain. It doesn't mean that they should well, be taken down. Well, and there's also the point here. You've got, the, I mean, yes, Ofcom is better. Having Ofcom do it better is better than having Facebook or Twitter do it. Yeah. I mean, because they have some awareness of, of the environment in which they operate and they are accountable to Parliament. Yeah. I mean, you saw the difference between Ofcom and YouTube with when talk radio's own YouTube channel was taken down yeah. and Ofcom had nothing to do with that and put its an enormous amount of distance between itself and mm. the behaviour of YouTube. Yeah. But the point is, via the, the back door, in the form that this legislation is now, and you must remember it's in the form that it is now, it's basically saying, well, the way YouTube behaved then is acceptable as long as they do it like this. Yeah. But it's still conceding that it is entirely reasonable on the basis of people having a moan and having a grossly inflated sense of what hurts them or harms them, I mean, realistically, the mm. appropriate response to someone who says, oh, I find that psychologically hurtful is literally go down to B&Q, get a spoonful of cement, stick it in your mouth, swallow it <laughs> and harden up. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, I've just had this. I know. I, I've just had people whinging about, oh, someone called me a nasty name on the internet. Yeah. If I had a pound for every nasty name that I've ever been called in my life, given my age and where I grew up and my sexual orientation and so on and so forth, I would not need to appear on the Independent Republic of Mike <laughs> Graham. I would not need to do write any more novels. Helen Dale there, you, you can imagine when this all comes to be, this online harms bill, I said this on richieallen.co.uk today, you will look back at 2021 where censorship is... Well, it's nightmarish at the moment, isn't it? Let's be honest about it. But in the, in the very near future, you look back and you will think that we lived in utopia. You'll be able to say nothing, niente, online about anything that's really important, whether it be medicinal safety, medicine safety, whether it be 
your government's your government's uh, say it for me foreign policy, your government's approach to um, I don't know wars overseas, your government intervening in the goings on in other countries, obviously vaccines. You won't be able to say anything because tech companies at the risk of being deleted or fined enormous amounts of money will be deleting before you even press post. Before you go, right, I'm happy with that now. I've looked at the yellow card system. I see a lot of people are starting to get thrombosis from a certain vaccine. I need to share this. Before you press post, it'll be deleted. You look back to 2021, you'll think, Jesus, it was great. Back in 2021. And it's hardly great now, is it? This is very important. Let me um, do this before we get Gilad on. God, I'm running out of time. I can go on, can't I? I can drone on with the best of them. I'm well aware of it. That's okay. Very important, this. Doctors are being told to promote the use of virtual consultations and to discourage face-to-face appointments. This is new NHS guidance. Now, this came in last March, April, right? They said people should stay at home and see their doctors online because of the pandemic and because COVID was so widespread. Okay, they looked at it again in September last year and they said, yes, keep it going now, keep it going. Get as many people to see their doctors online as you can. Now, they want this to be a permanent thing. They want at least one third of doctor consultations with patients to be done online. This is terrible. The implications are should be obvious to everybody what this will mean in terms of doctors missing things. Missing things. They're bad enough as it is. Doctors' appointments are bad enough as it is. I ranted on about this a couple of years ago when the oft-mentioned future missus was feeling bad, run down, terribly run down, energyless, knackered, right? And not feeling well and all the rest of it. Uh, got her in, didn't do so much as a blood test, didn't so much, do so much as a blood pressure test, asked her what was going on while they were clicking away on the keyboard, the doctor. This is the truth now. Five minutes, you know, bish bosh, off you go. So that was crap, but they want to make it worse than that now. If they want you to go online and chat to a doctor, either over the phone or Skype or Zoom. It's dreadful. And uh, a Tory peer called Baroness Ross Altman was on Jeremy Vine's BBC Two radio programme today and she explains why she feels this is just not good at all. Well, that, for me, would be a terrible situation and it would be the start of an unravelling of all that the NHS has achieved over the last few decades. You know, people need face-to-face appointments. We've seen so many illnesses missed over the last year, whether it's cancer or heart problems or diabetes. People haven't been able to get to the doctor. The doctor hasn't been going into homes. Uh, And just going online, obviously, if if it's an elderly person who uh, can't manage online, that's almost impossible. But even for those younger people who, who could manage online, they can't always know what's wrong with them and need a doctor to look at them and examine them to find out. So the the doctors, some of them say they are actually getting more patients through the doors by not having them come through the doors, if you see what I mean. They say that if they have an online portal, they they manage to deal with more patients. 
Well, managing to deal with patients doesn't necessarily mean that you're managing to look after their health properly. You know, just because you're, you're talking to someone doesn't mean you spot the problems that they've got, which you would do if you were able to see them. Now, clearly, some people, if they're busy working and they have just a routine um, issue or, or a, a prescription checkup, that could perhaps be done online, no problem. But where people need and want uh, a, a face-to-face -face appointment, a proper medical examination that can check up on, on what's wrong, if they don't feel well, they won't necessarily know what's wrong with themselves. They need a doctor to help them understand it. If you don't believe now that there is a war on the elderly in this country and beyond you'll never be convinced of it. If you don't see it now and if you don't believe it, if you can't comprehend it, there's no hope for you. They want rid of the old. They want rid of the retired. They want rid of them. Look what they did last year to care homes. Locking people into hermetically sealed care homes and sending people with illnesses into those care homes from hospitals to free up beds. They didn't need to do that. Killed people. Old people dying in their thousands of pneumonia. They don't care about old people. Cashless society. That's on the menu as well. Massive that. Huge part of the agenda that. We talk about that very often. Um, the Witch Guide. The, the Witch, by the way, is a consumer guide in the UK. It's a consumer magazine. It's very good, The Witch Guide, it must be said. I've used it on many an occasion. They've um, come together with uh, major retailers in this country to convince major retailers to sign a pledge to remain cash-friendly. And quite a few retailers have gone along with it. Aldi, John Lewis and Lloyd's Pharmacy have committed and signed the pledge that they will always accept cash as a method of payment, which believes that 10 million people in this country, 10 million, would be fecked, would be shagged, would be screwed if we move to complete cashless. 10 million. Now, it's a lovely move by the retailers. Uh, the, the retailers have a combined market share of 30%, which is good. Good that they signed a pledge that they will always accept cash. But what good is it when ATM machines are disappearing across the country? Bank branches and post offices are closing at the speed of light. Watch that one closely. That's a major pillar of the plans of the lunatics behind this agenda. Cashless. If they manage to get there, it's game over. It's uh, 17, what is it, nine, 18 minutes to the top of the air. Thursday's programme, the 15th. Jesus, you're getting ahead of yourself. It's the 13th, the 13th of May 2021. I do believe, bangs his head off the microphone, Gilad Atzman is uh, standing by in Athens. We're going to have a chat about quite a few things with him. He'll be on with me for a good 45, 50 minutes. We'll do that. After this from Queen, yeah, a bit of Queen today, from The Works album from 1984, which Queen fans don't rate very highly, but I love The Works. I think it's a great album myself, personally. Gilad Asman, you can tweet me, BBG Richie, I will read your tweets out as we go along. Good to be with ya. To be with ya, good. Queen and Radio Gaga from The Works album... Of course, the big hit from the works was I Want to Break Free. You'll probably remember that. Uh, I Want to Break Free, I think, was banned in several Eastern Bloc countries. 
Eastern Bloc governments didn't want people singing I want to break free in 1984. But anyway, what difference does that make? Before we welcome Gillad back to the programme, it's been a while, I want to read a very brief passage from an article by Brendan O'Neill in Spiked Online. Now don't think for a minute that I think that Brendan O'Neill is some expert in geopolitical affairs. Or, or some, you know, in, interesting commentator who's got something to say. I don't. Not on the affairs of uh, Palestine, Israel, or, or geopolitics in general. Brendan O'Neill is mildly interesting when he's talking about culture wars and social justice warriors and, uh, and COVID lockdowns. Mildly interesting. He's just another red-faced, red-necked, right-wing moron. In my opinion, but that's okay. That's just my opinion. But I've got to be balanced here. I'm going to read you a little bit of this. It'll take me a minute. And Gilad can have as much time as he wants on the programme today. He's in Athens, a place he loves. He's written about it many times. Right, so O'Neill starts off. The article is entitled, Why Won't Israelis Let Themselves Be Killed? Subheading is, The Global Woke Loathing for Israel. The Global Woke Loathing for Israel is taking an even darker turn. So he kicks off, does O'Neill, talking about Turkish forces launching an assault in the Duhok region of Iraqi Kurdistan two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, Turkish forces launched an assault. Villagers fleed in terror from raining bombs. Right, it's only the latest bombardment of the Kurds by Turkey, says O'Neill. But it didn't trend online. Where were the protests in London or New York? The Turks weren't talked about in woke circles as crazed blood thirsty killers. It's not the same when it comes to Israel, says O'Neill. When Israel engages in military action, that's a different story. Always, every time. Anti-Israel fury in the West has intensified to an extraordinary degree following an escalation of violence in the Middle East in recent days. He goes on to talk about protests, how inflammatory they were, Israeli flags being burned on the streets of London, social media condemning Israel, Western politicians like Keir Starmer passing judgment and all of that. And he goes on to ask, uh, why doesn't Israel just give in and allow its citizens to be killed? He's a pro-Israeli, pro-Zionist guy, is O'Neill. But he makes a point. Uh, Many people would share his point of view. Let's welcome back to the programme the philosopher, the author and the brilliant jazz saxophonist. He's in Athens this evening. It's our friend Gilad Atzman. Welcome back, Gilad. Hey man, great, great to be with you again. Hey, I started pl- to miss you, but I'm happy that uh, you see that I uh, that I'm still around. Listen, <laughs> you're, you're you're never far from my mind, and that's the truth. Now, yeah. O'Neill has got a point, doesn't he? We're a big bunch of hypocrites. There we are writing articles about what's going on in Gaza every time that something happens, and yet when it happens in 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 Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, or elsewhere, we've got nothing to say. If the Syrian government, if its troops torture Syrian civilians, we say nothing. But when it comes to Israel, we hold the Israeli government to a different standard. He's got a point, yeah, right? I think- I, I think that uh, I think that you are right, and we should be very thankful to Mr. O'Neill because uh, is uh, um, the point that he tries to raise help us to understand what is this unique thing about Israel um, that uh, bothers uh, so many of us. Uh, 
so often. You know, when it comes to me, it's quite clear. I'm uh, I'm from there, and uh, and and I'm troubled uh, with a lot of things that uh, this country is doing, especially to its indigenous habitants. But I like O'Neill also try to understand why is it that um, other people who may have nothing to do with uh, the region and they are not uh, Jewish and uh, or even Palestinian and they are extremely troubled by this country and by its politics. And when you start to look into it, you understand that the comparison, for instance, with Syria for Brits is not really genuine. And the same applies to a comparison uh, with Turkey or with other uh, regimes uh, that he doesn't approve. And one of the first reasons is that as far as I can tell, and I just actually checked the details uh, two days ago, um, apparently 80% of our uh, conservatives MPs are members of the conservative uh, Friends of Israel Club. Yes. Uh, I don't know uh, what is the number for uh, the LFI, the Labour Friends of Israel Club. But as far as I can remember, uh, not many members of our parliaments are friends of any Turkish-friendly club or any Syrian-friendly club. And when we start to look uh, deeply into it, we see that uh, a lot has been written about, for instance, Israel dominating through its lobbies the American uh, foreign politics through APAC and uh, J Street and so on and so on. And the same applies to France through the CRIF, which is a similar lobbying, uh, Israeli lobby group. Most people won't have heard of the one in France. That's very interesting. I mean, I have, but but most people won't know that the lobby is as strong in France as it is elsewhere. It's actually very, very, very strong. And uh, when we start to ask ourselves questions such as what is it about this small country um, that um, uh, mobilizes such serious power? A lot of questions, a lot of troubling, a lot of troubling answers actually. Uh, start to pop uh, in the air. And these are exactly the questions that both Mr. O'Neill and many other um, Zionist enthusiasts don't want us to ask. Well, he's not here. Hang on. He's not here. Let me give you the short answer. This is your hour now, not mine, because I get to say what I want to say all the time. So I'm going to give you all the time in the world. I'll tell you what O'Neill will say. And what is said to me regularly, he will say Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the home of the Jews. Jews have been harassed, threatened, murdered, tortured, burned, gassed for centuries. It's their home. We have a responsibility to look out for the Jews of Israel. Uh, We have a lot in common with them. Uh, You know, these are the answers they'll give you. And therefore, this is what he'll say, right? To start with, these are 
totally legitimate answers. Um, for me, as a person who was born a Jew and is not a Jew anymore and is not an Israeli anymore, it's actually, funny enough, these answers that made me reject this identity. And I cannot even say that I reject the religion because I never been religious, like still most of the Israelis. Yes? Yeah, most of the yeah. Israelis, most of the Israeli Jews are not religious. I wouldn't dare myself, I, do, I wouldn't dare say that most Israelis are not Jews because maybe the Orthodox Jews together with the uh, Palestinian, uh, they are more than the majority. But most Israeli Jews are not, uh, uh, not actually religious. And uh, so... I accept that this is the Jewish state. This is how it defines itself, and Mr. O'Neill is about that. But the problem here is that democracy, it isn't. And why it isn't a democracy, and it never been a democracy, at the most, it was a Jewish democracy. And in Jewish democracy, um, people are not equal because some people are chosen. When we look at Israel, when we look at Israel, 50% of the people who live actually between the river and the sea are Palestinians and they like any civil civilian rights in the state that determines that their fate. And this is why we have a conflict. Yeah. Who are these Palestinians? These Palestinians are people that were ethnically cleansed in 48 and in 67. And the conflict that we have now in Jer following this event in Jerusalem because, because, was because of another attempt to cleanse Palestinians from their uh, livelihood, from their, from, their, from, from their homes and so on and so on. Now, when it comes to the 20% of the Israelis who are Arabs and are Palestinians that, can, that manage to uh, cling to their land, they really um, are under a lot of pressure, discriminated uh, regularly, regularly and so on and so on. And this is exactly why we see a very, very um, a frightening uh, conflict at the moment from the Israeli perspectives, because the battle is not just in Gaza. In fact, the vicious battle is in the Israeli streets, yeah. to start with, in those uh, cities in Israel, like uh, uh, Acre and, uh, and uh, Jerusalem, and um, Jaffa. Is this in, where uh, is this where you've got? Is this where you've got? These, got, are, these this... are cities that are are uh, just I just finished this point. Yeah. These are cities. They are mixed cities. Yes, and, that's what uh, I meant. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Israel used to brag about coexistence. Yeah. But the Palestinians in these cities, the Israeli Arabs, as they call them, were left behind with a lot of issues, with lack of education, a lot of uh, crime uh, growing that the Israeli failed to address and so on and so on. And now it, uh, <laughs> it came back to bite them uh, from behind. You've answered the question, yeah. These are areas which are mixed. So you've got Arabs and, and, and Israelis living side by side. And we've seen some pretty nasty videos on social media of fighting and attacks. I, I'm, I've become very reluctant to take 
anything at face value that I see on Twitter. Because people have become, and, and that's everybody now, not just Israelis, but Palestinians as well, Irishmen, Frenchmen. Everybody's become very good at manipulating stuff and putting out what they want you to see on social media. But what we're seeing is obviously disturbing, right? I, I, I'll give you that. Why, why when, when O'Neill says in his article, when he says that, look at what the UK government is responsible for in Yemen. Now, I, I've covered this on my programme extensively. I've talked about it to death, really. Um, not since, obviously, the COVID nightmare, but I've talked about it a lot. So we're given weapons of, well, evil beyond anything I could ever have imagined to the Saudis, a wretched regime, to go and kill innocent Yemenis at a rate that we don't even know. You could be talking hundreds of thousands of people. Never so much as a protest on the streets against our own government. Never so much as, you know, burning effigies of Boris Johnson, calling him the devil. How can you be responsible? Because Johnson is responsible for the murder of hundreds of thousands of Yemenis. Yet nothing from the left in this country. But when Israel says, we're going in there because they're firing rockets at southern Israel and they're firing rockets into, into, into domesticated areas, Israel says, well, we're going to defend ourselves. I'm not saying I agree with this. But we take to the streets in our thousands. We saw them in Scotland. We saw them in London. O'Neill has got a point. What's wrong with There's something wrong with that. There must be. I, I Actually, I agree with you. And I'm uh, equally troubled uh, by uh, British government or American government, yeah. uh, American government um, selling a um, weapon or providing uh, weapons or uh, even uh, sending its soldiers uh, to serve those countries. But when you look deeply into the example that you just uh, cited, you immediately realize that we are actually selling or giving these weapons, I may say we Americans, Brits, uh, France, and so on and so on, and sending our soldiers to these regions where we are de facto serving Zionist and Israeli and neoconservative in uh, interests. Israel benefits. So, Israel benefits. So when we, when we are kind of uh, helping the Saudis, for instance, in Yemen, it's because there is a conflict in the Middle East. And in this conflict, the Saudis are with the Israelis and the Iranians are with the Houthis yeah. in Yemen. All right. So this is the reason that more and more people see Israel as a problem now. But how is Israel the problem? Let me jump in. How is Israel? The, let me jump in. No, let me jump in. Let me jump in. No, it's important. Let me jump in. It's really important. And I will get out of your way. I said this to Kevin Barrett recently. I said it to Gerald Salente. How is Israel the problem? How is Israel the problem? We know, journalists know what Israel is. We know what Israel's program is. We know what it wants to do. It, it doesn't make any bones about it. I admire, much as I despise, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I've said everything there is to say about Israel, how I feel about it. The government, not the Israeli people. It's successive governments. I despise, I loathe it. I don't believe Israel has any right to exist. I know how Israel came to be, going back to the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. I know my history. I have no time for it. But I admire Israel. Israel makes no bones about what it wants to do. Why do we spend so much time 
pissing and moaning about the state of Israel when it is enabled by our governments. And, and I'll tell you something else. You made a point a minute ago. If I know that there's a guy living in, in, in Kingston-upon-Sems, if I know that he wants to murder Gilad Atzman, the jazz legend, if I know this and I hand him a loaded 45, I should do more time in prison than he does. Our governments are worse than the government in Tel Aviv. And they always have been. It's not good enough to say we do what Israel wants us to do. For me, that's become a pathetic argument. Now I'll shut up over I, to you. I, I, believe it or not, I do agree with you here entirely. And uh, I actually also have more respect to the Israeli government and to the Israeli right wing who, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm talking about the most radical right wing, who are doing what they vote to do. When you look at the conflict that we see now, this is something that is hardly conspiratorial. Yeah, there yeah. were um, a body that was recently elected to the, to the Israeli parliament, to the Knesset, and they are ultra right wing. They were determined um, to dismantle the possibility of a coalition, Benjamin Netanyahu coalition with uh, the Israeli Islamic Party. Maybe it's too complicated. Blah blah blah. I don't want to get into the into this <clears throat> this story. But this uh, uh, Knesset member called Gvir, he was very determined to um, start his office in Sheikh Jarrah and he wasn't trying to hide behind any um, universal or ethical uh, pseudo-argument, which is something that unfortunately people in the left are always doing. And in that respect, in that respect, I do understand where you come from, and I do understand where uh, Mr. O'Neill comes comes from. I think that there is something that we must admit: the Israeli ultra Zionists, as we call them, or right wingers, are, and we I, I don't agree with them on nothing. Yeah, I do a lot to expose them, but they are definitely genuine in saying what they're after, yeah. what they want, what they believe in, and where they believe this conflict should lead and where it ends. Um, it's obviously something that I cannot accept, but when I try to look at their counterparts at the, at the left or the British left and American left, and I try to understand what is their answer. And they have really nothing to say. They are yeah. come with kind of convoluted discourses of a two-state solution, something that doesn't address the, 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 the fundamental issues uh, of this, uh, that uh, at the heart of this conflict. Uh, it, it doesn't really lead to any resolution. It's kind of trying to sustain a yeah. political activist uh, 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 agenda. Nothing more than that. Brilliantly it's very sad. It's very sad. It's very sad. And the and the people who suffered the most at the moment because of that, because of this paralysis, are both the Israelis and the Palestinians. Absolutely. 
all right? Because we couldn't actually address this issue that is called Israel, because people like O'Neill and uh, and uh, all the Israeli lobby groups and so on and so on would silence everyone who tries to criticize this country. This place is now facing a disaster. Israel is facing now a battle at the moment at in two fronts, but maybe tomorrow morning it, it, it escalates into three and four and five fronts. And uh, people who care for Israel and care for the Jewish people, and as I understand from you, I don't know enough about uh, Mr. O'Neill, he cares for the Jewish people, if, to quote you, um, he should be the one that should encourage people to question Israel, to question it, its politics, to question the British support and so on and so on. Israel is at the center of many of our global issues. Now, can I come in on that? Let me come in on that. Two things. For listeners who are new to the programme who don't know where I am, let me tell you where I am. Um, Palestine belongs to the Palestinian people and to the Israelis who've been there since the 1940s. That's how I am. Israel is a brutal occupier. It's an apartheid state. The Israeli government is racist. It commits crimes that are comparable to the crimes committed by the Nazis. There's no doubt about that. This is how I feel. My sympathies are with the Palestinian people. They always have been. I'm not just being the devil's advocate here with Gilad. You've got to take this to an intellectual level. Can't keep having the same old arguments. You know, oh, the Israelis are terrible and they're doing this and they're doing that. Now, you just touched on something there. Paul Craig Roberts is a former US Assistant Treasury Secretary. He is yeah. a, he's a, he's a lovely gentleman and he is scared of nobody. And he criticises Israel as strongly as any US politician um, I've ever known. No time for Israel. He says, Paul, that you and I have got it all wrong. Rather than the US and the UK being the puppets of Israel, we're blind, Paul reckons. We're blinded by our feelings of antipathy towards Israel. The real puppet is Israel. And Israel is in the control of neoconservatives, and it has been since... uh, since the 1940s. Now, he's expanded on that briefly in a programme with me, but he gets impatient with me interrupting him. So so the last time we got into it, I kind of left it there. But I'm open-minded. Are we blind? We talk about Israeli influence in France, in Germany, in the UK, in, in America. Is it the wrong way around? Is Washington controlling all of this? I, uh, I, um, <laughs> sorry to disappoint you here, but uh, I tend to Only a question. agree. I tend to agree with uh, Paul Craig uh, Roberts, and and he actually often agrees with me uh, on many issues. I've seen him, um, you know, uh, referring to my work quite often, and this, and vice versa. Um, and I think that uh, when it comes to America, for instance, it is very clear to me and to many others and to many academics who have been uh, uh, writing about it, that Israel dominates every aspect of American politics that is relevant to Israel. More than that, the Jewish lobby re- um, dominates those issues that are relevant, according to them, to Jewish interests. And I will take it 
one step further, if you talk about America, I think that America is operating now as an Israeli remote colony. And I can tell you that Britain is not far behind. And uh, this is another thing that, um, that uh, makes people in Britain, for instance, if we are going back to Mr. O'Neill, that uh, makes people in Britain slightly unhappy with uh, Israeli brutality and with the way it is uh, reported in the British press and the way um, Western politicians talk about Israel's rights to defend itself. Because the core of the issue here, and I know it very well because I'm from there, but more and more people understand it. Who are the people in Gaza? Who are the people in Gaza? The people in Gaza, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are refugees, people that were ethnically cleansed three years after the liberation of Auschwitz. Three years after the Jews suffered probably the most horrendous moment in their history, after the kind of this moment came to an end, they were ethnically cleansed for not being Jewish. Not Jews, though. Jews weren't doing that. Jews were not doing that. Okay. Jews, Jews were, 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 were tending to their wounded. They were coming to terms with the psychological horrors of I, what happened to them. The people that, I, we're talking I, about the Stern gang you know, I, and Haganah yeah, and these terrorist groups, a, they're not Jews, yeah, right? I spoke about Israel now. Yeah. I, I spoke about Israel. Israel wasn't a big, uh, wasn't, wasn't big at the time. It would be right to say that most uh, the Jews uh, were not in Israel, so the Jews cannot be blamed for no. it. Um, it. Historically, it would be uh, true to argue that only after 67, Jews worldwide actually started to see Zionism as their, uh, as their voice. But you ask yourself, why? Why after 67? Why after 67? After 67, because in, after 67, Israel be, became a, a mighty a military a yeah. force, a yeah. superpower, regional uh, superpower. And it is very clear now, nowadays, that the vast majority of Jews, at least institutionally, obviously I, I'm not going to talk to every Jew in the world, and I, uh, I know enough uh, Jews who don't uh, support Israel, but institutionally, most Jewish institutions in the world support Israel. Look what is happening in Britain. There are some kind of marginal Jewish bodies that oppose Israel, and I don't like. I don't. I'm. I'm not supporters of this uh, Jewish leftists at all. Yes. Yeah. One of the reasons that I don't support them because I say, if you are against Israel because you believe that a crime is happening in Palestine, I don't care whether you are a Jew or not. A crime is a crime. The fact that you are Jewish is irrelevant. All right. So I have my own issues with Jewish with these Jewish groups. But what is very interesting is that all those Zionist bodies like the BOD and so on and so on, 
they actually discredit these tiny organizations and don't allow them to talk no. in the name of the Jews. The only way they get away oh. with that, they only get away with that because of the UK media. These ultra-Zionist groups in the UK are... Uh, they're prominent in the UK media and it gives an illusion that these are important groups and that they are well supported. My experience has been, because I came under serious attack from um, Friends of Israel groups, uh, Zionist uh, groups in the northwest here some years ago, so I looked into this with, with great detail. Th- there is a silent majority and the silent majority, in my opinion, is Jews, especially in Manchester, who have no time for Israel, but they are drowned out by a very vocal minority, which is promoted by the UK press. That's just my opinion. I agree with, you know, you're talking about the Board of Deputies of British Jews. You can talk about uh, that guy Gideon Falter, these idiots, these uh, anti-Semitic people. They're not supported, these groups, I don't think. Listen, you know, I am probably one of the biggest experts, <laughs> well, I'm talking worldwide, on Jewish matters, not because I'm very clever, uh, just because I'm the only one who is stupid enough to, to go into this, uh, to enter this swamp, you know, and uh, and taking the flag. Agreed. But um, the one thing that I don't do, um, and also because I'm not interested in doing is uh, making kind of all those uh, uh, statistical, providing all these statistic uh, statistics, how many Jews support Israel and how many Jews don't support. What I, I understand. Do yeah, I understand. What I do instead, and I was the first one to do it, I said, instead of asking who are the Jews, I ask a very simple question. What are the people who self-identify as Jews? What is it that they believe in? What is it that they identify with? What is it that they want to see happening with their life? And by the way, it's not one answer. There are quite few answers. But what I found out that, and by the way, when I'm saying that there are a lot of answers, I can quote to you some answers that you may even find this disturbing. Uh, you know, uh, the greatest uh, phil- Israeli philosopher, Yishayao Leibovich, and uh, he's not with us uh, for many years, he already said in the 70s that the new Jewish religion, and he was an Orthodox Jew, the new Jewish religion is the Holocaust, because Jews believe in so many different things, but all Jews actually believe in the Holocaust. And this has developed into a very interesting uh, discourse uh, that discusses Holocaust religion in Israel and among uh, Jewish uh, philosophers around the world. My quest is entirely philosophical. I ask what is it that they identify with. And what, what I really found is that most people who self-identify politically, politically, it's very important, as Jews, see in themselves in themselves an element of exceptionalism and by the way by saying that i actually vindicated the religious jews at the time i wrote the wandering who because they don't identify politically as jews they identify religiously, religiously. Yeah, yeah. as jews it's a very very big difference 
Now, this is very relevant for us because this is identitarianism. One of the reasons the Jews are so good in identitarianism is because they're doing it for 2,500 years. Black Lives Matters are doing it for two and a half years. Um, feminists are doing it for 70 years. All right. You've written about Jews this in um, in a book which is excellent. It's called Being in Time. I recommend if folks want to get into this and understand it, read Being in Time by Gilad Atzman. Go to gilad.co.uk. That's who we've got on. Uh, the Wandering Who, the study of Jewish identity politics is excellent as well. For those of you who don't understand this because it's new to you, when Gilad was referencing uh, political Jews and 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 their belief in the Holocaust, he's not suggesting that the Holocaust is some sort of fantasy thing that didn't happen. I know exactly what he's saying when he says that. I've had this conversation with Norman Finkelstein and others. For many latter-day Jews, it seems that they almost feel that 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 the Jews came to be around the time of the Holocaust. And that has implications for... Um, for, for the feeling of exceptionalism that you talk about and that you write about in your books. Now, I've probably misrepresented some of what you've said, but that's how I kind of see it. Um, we could get really bogged down with this, but I don't want to, because I want to ask you uh, about coronavirus in a moment. I also don't want to cut your legs away. If you've got more to say, I do want you to have the time to say it. No, but I, I, I'm always, I always, I, I really love talking to you because you always take me to, uh, with your devil advocate tactics you always take me to a uh, corners uh, that are new to me and as a jazz artist i really really love it as a, as an excellent jazz artist we must talk in a few <laughs> moments about ronnie's about you coming back to london and playing we'll do that in a moment um give us a quick answer um i i i don't want to sound like a virtue signaler because i've never been one it um it devastates me to see what's happening in in gaza and what might happen you know we know that um, I hate I hate that the media uses the term border. There is no border. There's an illegal wall. There's a fence that shouldn't be there. And troops are, are, are massing there. There's talks of a ground invasion. What it will do to people in Gaza, what it, it'll set them back years like it always does. Um, how do you see this playing out? If you don't mind being brief, and then we'll move on to talk about coronavirus, what's your uh, instinct about where this will go? I think that... Uh it's quite uh, tragic uh, to uh, to a certain extent, um, but uh, there is no, at least in the Israeli side, which I monitor on a daily basis, and especially now at the time of a crisis, I basically read uh, uh, every Israeli uh, bit of information. They never try to look at the situation and to think in terms of a metaphysical exit strategy. What they do instead, they see the event as a round of violence 
and then they go as far as thinking about how do we come out of this conflict and manage to uh, uh, manage to re uh, reintroduce our power of deterrence how can we get out of this war winning because at the moment we aren't uh, what can we do to deter the Palestinians from uh, throwing and this is not the issue and it didn't lead anywhere in the last for over 70 years what we need what they need because they are dominating they are they are a superpower still what they need is to understand the notion of human brotherhood of harmony of reconciliation now the most tragic aspect that I can share with your listeners and with you and with yourself is that in the modern Hebrew word, the modern Hebrew language, there is no word for peace and harmony. The word shalom, I'm sure that you heard the word shalom, and yeah, most, most yeah. people in the West heard the word shalom. The, the word shalom means I, it means. It does this we tend to translate it into peace, but in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, it translates into security. When Israelis speak, Israelis speak about shalom, what they re- really mean is having um, secure borders. If having a financial uh, um, um, financial uh, luxury, all right, they don't see it as something that really means a new sense of harmony, of reconciliation. And because we are lacking this aspect in the Israeli culture, I'm not very, very optimistic that they can lead us out of this conflict. Interestingly enough, there was an uh, Israeli election uh, six weeks ago, and the kingmaker in Israeli politics at the moment is the leader of the Islamic party. So out of uh, um, 120 uh, Knesset members, I think he has uh, six uh, MKs or maybe either four or six, I don't remember, maybe five, you know. Not many, but he is exactly the, the, the elementary force that is needed for Benjamin Netanyahu or, or the, 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 the alternative coalition the centrist uh, left coalition to form a government what was so amazing about that guy about mansur abbas is that he stood up at prime time israeli tv and spoke to the israeli nation and told him we have to move forward we are human beings we have more in common that that which divide us can we move on I don't care. I'm happy to sit with Benjamin Netanyahu. He said, I don't remember if these were his, his words, but this coalition almost happened. This coalition didn't happen, not 
because Mansour Abbas, the leader of the Islamic Party, was happy to sit in an Israeli right-wing uh, coalition, but because the ultra-Jewish right-wing, at the right of Netanyahu, said, we won't sit with a Muslim or is a hater, is a Jew hater, and so on and so on and so on. So there was an opportunity to make a major step here. Kind of like Let, a kind of like a Martin McGuinness, Ian Paisley kind of step, really. When those guys way, came together in in 1998. In a, in a way, yeah. and, and this 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 opportunity evaporated evaporated because those ultra white right white wingers uh, uh, were pushing for for uh, for 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 this uh, escalation now there is something that we didn't speak at all about and it is crucial for the understanding of what is happening and maybe this will be kind of the i don't think that we are going to have time to talk about the uh, covid uh, today but this is but this is something that people have to understand benjamin netanyahu in israel is in serious legal complications. He is yeah. facing a court case and his situation is not clear and it's definitely not good. Benjamin Netanyahu definitely doesn't want to end up behind bars and this is something that happened to many uh, Israeli politicians and I'm talking also about uh, former prime minister like Olmert and even Israeli president uh, was uh, was uh, yeah. sitting behind bars. He's a bit of a coward, isn't he, Netanyahu? He tried to frame his own wife for the things that he was accused of. He tried to get his <laughs> wife to front up and to take the blame. Not much of a man, now, really, is he? Now, the reason that I mention it, because, because when there are rockets in Israel, nobody looks... At the trial, the, the trial that is taking place at the yeah. moment is, if it's at all on the front page, it's like at the very bottom. When there is a corona crisis, nobody looks at Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu trial. And corruption. When there is a vaccine uh, nonsense going on, nobody looks at Benjamin Netanyahu trial and i think that this is a very significant element well you've written about this on you've, you've written about this years with COVID, with covid and with the current crisis i want to move it on now whether you like it or not that is hugely important and i think you've made the point and i go i go along with it and i could segue now into criticizing hamas i've never felt that the palestinian people have been served well or served properly by Hamas. Hamas are a bunch of goons, in my opinion, right? An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And I think Hamas often end up doing the bidding of the Israeli government more often than they might think. And that could go into conspiracy theory territory, you know, about how much is Hamas working for the Palestinians and how much is it working on behalf of the state of Israel. But I'm going to leave that one hanging. Uh, what you said about Netanyahu, people should go to gilad.co.uk uh, that article appeared on uns.com and elsewhere. It's a brilliant article. But I do want to talk about COVID. I do, because two things, and, and th this is probably going to be a dagger to your heart now. But listen, I get this all the time. I know my audience is bored to tears when we talk about Israel. Do you know that? This kills me. It kills me. When I was on the radio in Spain, when I was on the radio in Ireland, you couldn't talk about Israel. People just don't want to know. They don't give a shit even though it's the most important thing going on, 
in the world right now and it's the thing that has to be dealt with people just don't care they switch off we make it interesting we make it entertaining they don't want to hear about it and you know this to be true on 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 radio um it's been hugely important to talk about that but i i have to talk about coronavirus with you because you are a you you have to be quick because i have to we have to leave soon because uh, you told me 45 minutes and i, I did and we've gone well, 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 with you for a few minutes give me 5 minutes of course it's my fault for forgetting that you had to go my apologies no no it's, it's, it's no i'm it's a moron i forgot it's always great fun um, you're a brilliant saxophonist. You're, you're fantastic. Played with the Blockheads. Play, play with the Blockheads. Um, you're loved wherever you go. You're fantastic. Thank you. I know I, I, you are. I, I, I know a lot of musicians. I know a lot of actors, actresses. I know people who own clubs, pubs, venues, fast food restaurants, restaurants. This has been some terrible time. How much, how worried are you? Entertainment is food for our soul, isn't it? Music. How worried are you about the future of music and live music and entertainment? I think that um, that uh, there is a good reason uh, to be worried. I, on a personal level, I think that I mentioned it to you once. Uh, this was an incredible year for me. Um, I. Um, learned a lot of um, new things to do with my with my profession with my main profession with uh, with music and uh, engineering and producing and so on and so on and i produced a lot of music um that will be uh, in cinemas and you know you you will see it and so on and so on um live music i don't know what uh, to say i'm sure that um, a lot of um, artists um will have to consider what they want to do in a way in a way there are two vectors that are kind of dialectics in a kind of a, a dialectic um a conflict and it is very interesting on the one end society doesn't provide us a lot. Um, there is no manufacturing. There are no jobs. Every day we learn about a new factory that is closing down. And this is not something that started with uh, COVID. No. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a situation that uh, our government uh, failing to understand the importance of manufacturing and people uh, sustaining uh, their on ex their existence by their own means and so on and so on. So on the one end, actually, to be an artist, to produce beauty at this time is a great challenge. And it's something that uh, many of us are happy to do. The problem is that not everyone can produce beauty no. in fact very few people can produce real beauty and we tend to call these people geniuses yeah yeah there are very few geniuses one of the biggest problems that we have in britain and in the west is that we started to have all those schools that teaching young kids how to be jazz musicians knowing that if they're really good they will make 30 quid a night yeah. 
All right. We have all those poets and all those uh, um, rock uh, guitar players. And I don't think that we need so many of them or of us. I think that what we need is a few incredible guitar players and few incredible painters and few incredible philosophers and few incredible writers. And the big questions is what the rest are going to do. And I must tell you that I didn't see the labor being concerned with it. Yeah, and this is yeah, the yeah. why this party deserves the biggest punishment. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. Imagine a, a party but for the working I class, for working people. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing to me. Listen, you've got to go. So thanks for sharing that with us. Thanks for coming on from Athens. I'm sure you had better better things to do than yeah. come on with me today. But when when I know you're back in London soon, you're gigging in yeah, London yeah. in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, I will be. I come. I come to do a few concerts, a uh, few festivals, and then I'm the continuing to Europe. Man, great to talk to you. No, it's my and, pleasure. Uh, anytime, man. Godspeed to you, Gilad. Thanks Bye-bye. for that. Have a lovely evening. Gilad Atzman there, live from Athens. Sounds like he's heading out for a kebab or something along those lines. Thanks for all those tweets, by the way. I want to read out one specifically which came in, and it came in from Faisal. And it was on the Paul Craig Roberts thing. You might remember, you might not remember. I had this out with Paul Craig Roberts probably a couple of years ago. Faisal says, I have to agree with Paul because it seems obvious to me that Israel is just an obfuscation of NATO beachhead, a sort of modern crusader kingdom bypassing any Western democratic controls with pseudo-sovereignty. Thanks for that comment, Faisal. Uh, I probably, I won't say I misrepresented Paul, but there's more to what Paul thinks. But basically, Paul had said to me previously, you've gotten it all the wrong way around. This influence you believe that Israel wields in Western countries and over Western governments and over Western media is actually it's the other way around. It's a great con. It's a great, it's a great, um, he didn't say con, but he said it's, uh, it's, uh, he didn't say inversion either, but you know exactly the, along the lines which I'm talking, yeah. So we've, be, we've been fooled into thinking it's the Israelis controlling, when in fact Israel is controlled, is, is being controlled by neocon, um, the, the neocon movement. Now, if you want to know more about the neocon movement, you need to learn and read about somebody called Leo Strauss. Very important. I could go in, I could get into that now and go on and on and on about it, but I won't. Uh, the rise of Strauss in America and Saeed Qutub, um in the Middle East. Again, look, I could be here all day, so I'll leave that one there. And I'll take a tune. And when I come back, I'll read some more tweets. It's Thursday's programme, approaching 23 minutes to 7 o'clock. It's me, the BBG. Billy Swan, I can help on the Richie Allen Show, 19 minutes to 7 o'clock. If you've just joined the programme, how are you doing? Uh, each programme is archived at podomatic.com, richieallen.podomatic.com, richieallen.podomatic.com. It leaves people cold, the Israeli-Palestine thing. It does, historically it does. When, when I was presenting radio in Spain in the, in, in the early part of the last decade... 
if you please. I used to get into it quite regularly and I was lucky at the time because Zionists would come on from Israel and would argue with me and argue with some of my guests. But we, I quickly figured figured out that the the viewing figures, excuse me, the listening figures basically bottomed out when we discussed it. People didn't want to know about it. It didn't matter what had happened. Something absolutely terrible might have happened. It might be a big story. It, something, anything, you, you know, a bomb, anything. Uh, people didn't want to hear about it. And I, I made that point to Gillard at the end of the uh, discussion there. And I, I said, it's a dagger in your heart, not meaning because, I, did, I didn't mean because he might feel insulted by that. I, I know he wouldn't be insulted. But, you know, people who have advocated for the rights of the indigenous people of Palestine for years, they know this. It's one of the big problems they, they've got to get over. People don't care. I remember when I did this stuff in Spain at, at, at TRE in, in Marbella, the boss of the station was a Jewish gentleman and he had no problem with me going after Israel, none whatsoever. But his wife was a regular listener and she was fond of me as a broadcaster. She enjoyed listening to me and she couldn't care less either about Israel or Palestine. And she used to tell him, you know, it's boring me to death. I don't want to hear about it. And that's a big obstacle to, to, to get over, isn't it? When, when, when you talk about it. So um, I'm not going to talk any more about it on this programme tonight. If you've uh, missed the programme today, if you've missed, if you've just finished work, you've come in, uh, it's important. If you're in, I can only speak for the northwest of the UK because the northwest of the UK is, well, it's in the firing line. If you're from Blackburn or Bolton or the surrounding areas, and I'm in Salford, they're talking about surge vaccinations as a way to deal with emerging cases of the Indian variant of coronavirus. Now, you and a listener made a very good point on Twitter earlier in the programme, and I acknowledged that it's a very good point. It has occurred to me as well, and I have hinted at this in, in the past, this, you know, this um, approaching lockdowns locally and testing people and surge testing people. But Ewan made a very good point, made a very good point on Twitter. He said, isn't this a, a wonderful opportunity for those who want to vaccinate everybody? So you do it region by region or even town by town. So you basically say, without offering any proof, because you've got to take their word for it, don't you? We found a few cases of the Indian variant and we're a bit worried about that. Now, how can you, Joe Public, Joe Blogs, how can you say, uh, I don't believe you? Show me. There's no, there's no roadmap. There's no pathway. There's no pathway for you to demand proof. You take their word for it. And most of your neighbours will agree anyway. Or most of your neighbours will believe it. You don't believe it because you're not stupid. And you're like, I smell something fishy. I smell bullshit here. But your neighbours are saying, oh God, oh no, oh God. Oh God, Indian variant. So, yeah, I, I agree with you and it's a good point. This is a wonderful way to scare individual communities into taking the vaccine. Yes, it makes perfect sense to me. And like I said, it's occurred to me uh, before. We've talked about this before. I, I remember um, I remember having a conversation some years ago with, uh, 
it wasn't David I could think it was Jim Mars and Jim was talking about you know mandatory vaccinations in the future for for all manner of things and Jim said you know you you only need to get leaders locally to go along with it and to tell people locally now Mark Windows has talked a lot about this implementing global strategies locally so Ewan is bang on oh yeah Found a few Indian variants. Jesus. But, 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 don't panic. We've got some lorries coming. We've got some vaccinators on those lorries and some some persuaders. <laughs> and if you keep making people's lives miserable and lockdown is miserable, I've maybe not spoken very personally to you in the last 15 months. Maybe I haven't. I told you that last November I got very fed up. But I didn't get into that in any great detail. But it's a miserable life, this. It's miserable. I'm a social animal. My better half is a social animal. We love being out amongst people, doing things, listening to music, having a bit of a meal, when you can afford it. Going to a theatre. We love these things. These things are important for our happiness and they've not been there and I'm deeply fucking unhappy as a person. I keep the sunny side out most of the time. Most of the time. But I'm deeply unhappy with it. It's soul destroying to live like this. So the point is, if you do it enough times to enough people, eventually they'll take anything. They'll take anything, won't they? that you give them on on the promise, on the promise that you will eventually release it. Even if you, as in the, the government, and of course the forces behind the government, even if they've got no intention of ultimately releasing us from this bondage, if they make it bad enough and consistent enough, give you a tiny bit of freedom, this is the thing that will drive people insane. Give them a tiny bit of freedom, then reel them back in, reel them in, reel them in. We found a variant. Eventually people will do anything. They'll take anything. They'll submit themselves for anything. So that's where it's going to go. Surge vaccinations now is a new buzzword. Excuse me, it's a new phrase. Surge vaccinations. BBC reporting spectators might be allowed go to sports events in Northern Ireland from May 24th might be. We'll have to keep an eye on the Indian variant. You know, people will, this will drive people crazy. I saw a BBC News report this morning that said a survey of young people, an extensive survey of young people, brought back the result that 68% of them have been driven to despair by the events of the last year and three months or year and two months. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I'm a strong-minded man. I'm 46 and I have an understanding of what's going on. I think you're kind of better off if you have an understanding of what's going on. You don't get so depressed with the effects of the lockdown because you know what's going on. That's perversely a kind of a help. If you're a younger person, you haven't a clue what's going on. 
and you're bombarded with fear porn about killing granny and killing granddad and you're denied access to your friends and to the happy things I discussed a few minutes ago, the socialising. Yeah, it must be crippling for young people. So no surprise to me, the BBC says 68% of young people said, it's killing me. Yeah, well, that's what it's meant to do. But they don't know that, do they? Eh? Also uh, breaking this afternoon was the news that 82% of the so-called clinically vulnerable have had both doses of the coronavirus vaccine. Whichever one they've had, AstraZeneca most likely, 82%. And 90% of NHS staff, it is being claimed, have had a vaccine. But the great unwashed, me, you, well, you and me, we know, but again, our neighbours are not demanding an end to this. Our neighbours who run businesses are not sticking two fingers up at the government and opening the doors to people coming inside. They're not. They're still waiting for the go-ahead. And now they're worried because they're being told about an Indian variant. Oh yeah, the Indian variant, huh? Crazy. By the way, trigger warning, Hayden Hewitt and company. Not going ahead tonight, it'll be back next Thursday. I know some of you, like me, enjoy watching that. YouTube.com forward slash trigger warning TV. Not on today, back next week. Um, but do check out Altfeed. Uh, is it .com or .org, Hayden? Altfeed, do check that out. That's a very new and very interesting project. I want you to check out. Uh, let me put... Let me find out, because I hate to do that. I hate to kind of leave it hanging there, you know. Uh, what is it? Is it altfeed.org? It's altfeed.org. Yes, I got it right first time. Check that out. That's a new social media project that you should check out. Hayden Hewitt, altfeed.org. And while I'm here, I suppose I should give a plug to Sunday Morning Melodies, which is me playing some songs that I like every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock UK time on richieallen.co.uk exclusively. It's the only place you can hear the programme. Ron, who turned 80 recently, says, Richie, they can try all they want. No chance with me. No doubt, Ron. No doubt, my friend. Uh, William in Scotland says, at the end of the day, Richie, they won't need to get us all. Now, of course, a lot of people believe. And I think they've got good reason to believe it, even though we can't prove it. But a lot of people believe that the vaccinated will represent a danger to the unvaccinated. We're talking shedding here. And we have gotten into that on the programme and we will get into it again in the coming days and weeks. That's a promise. Now, of course, the establishment wants you to believe that the unvaccinated represent a threat to the herd, which is junk science. It's garbage. It's nonsense. It has no basis in scientific fact. There is no evidence to support it. There is no evidence to suggest ever in history that a non-vaccinated person could be, in any way, could be a danger to somebody who's had a vaccine. It's bullshit, right? It's bullshit. It's also bullshit to suggest that young people should have a vaccine, not for themselves, but to protect the wider community. This is junk science, these are ideas that are not being challenged anywhere in mainstream media. 
Right. But again, we'll be getting into these things on uh, on the programme, uh, on this programme next week and in the coming uh, weeks. So it's been a very interesting week. Uh, some very interesting people on the programme. If you, if you missed any of it, again, go to richieallen.podomatic.com. We're on iTunes, Spotify, the usual places, for now anyway. Um, Room Ended, who's given me her name, but I've just gone, I've gone now on a Thursday, says, Richie, they can stick mandatory up where the sun won't shine. We well, see, the thing is, at the moment, they're not moving towards attempting to mandate, except with um, people who work in, in, in care, people who work in, in social care. They are putting enormous pressure on care workers to have it. Right, the government is actively considering whether it can legislate for that. But for everybody else, it's coercion for the moment. For the moment, it's coercion. Make life as difficult as you possibly can and they'll get the vaccine. Of course, the, the thing is, ironically, people are getting the vaccine and life isn't returning to normal. At what point do people who've had both doses say, Jesus, we've been had, we've been conned, we've been lied to, I feel like a bit of a fool now, I've had me jabs, it seems like most of everybody else has had theirs, and yet they still want us to distance, they still want us to test and trace, and they still want us to carry passports, where does it end? At what point will people begin asking questions? You know, I'm saying it to people, I said it to somebody recently who's had two jabs, it's Caroline by the way, Room ended. I've said to somebody who's had two jabs, do you not feel a bit stupid now? It's a woman that uh, that I know uh, who I meet with other people in my local park. Terribly frustrated she is that things aren't changing. Even though nearly, well, everybody we were told who is vulnerable has had the jab. Everybody. And yet, why Richie, why can't I go on my holidays? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said, you don't listen to my radio programme. You don't want to. You don't want to listen to my guests. You don't care. And uh, and that's your own choice. And I understand that. I don't blame you. You know, everybody, free will, free choice. But you're asking me, why don't things open up after we've had the vaccines? I'm telling you, I know the answer. I've had people on the programme who know the answer to that, but you don't want to know. And that's where we are. Hey, listen, Sunday Morning Melodies, 10 o'clock UK time. UK time. Sunday morning melodies, I'll be playing some tunes, we'll have a chat. Until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Excuse me, enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday. And uh, thanks again to Gilad Atzimon today and to all my guests this week. Going out of the programme with Elton John. Why not? Bit of tiny dancer there. Speak real soon. <laughs>